Hi, everybody. Thank you for tuning into Blockchain for the Billions. This is Gabby Coos with us today of the Global DCA, Global Digital Currency Association. Um, hi, Gabby. Welcome. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you and your listeners. Yeah, thank you for joining us. So something we like to do on Blockchain for the Billions is really just get kind of uh, a project or an organization's, you know, founders stories and just kind of their journey to beginning the project or organization. So what sort of got you started in digital assets or in crypto? What kind of piqued your interest? How did it, what led you there? So the very simple answer is a Subway sandwich, but... (laughs) I'll give some context to that, and then we can boil it down. Um, About three years ago, I went to a Voice of Blockchain conference here in Chicago. And, you know, I have a very different background. Mine was in international economic and financial sector development. So um, I've worked in 50 different countries. I've helped to support the development of governance institutions, in particular, self-regulatory organizations in their establishment, their growth and development, and their recognition either by governments or by an international uh, entity. And at this conference, um, I happened to listen and a lot of what I heard were the same things that I would hear if I were um, in an emerging economy or in a new industry or, or an industry that was undergoing significant transformation. So it revolved all around you know, volatility, uncertainty, legal and regulatory complexity with regards to technology and sophistication and ambiguity in terms of where it was going, what it would look like eventually, right? So we call these like VUCA environments. Um, And during the course of the discussions, you know, a lot of it started to kind of piece together, you know, very naturally with my skill set. And I happened to go outside and have a Subway sandwich for lunch. (laughs) And I sat down next to um, a young man who kind of introduced himself and we started chatting and he kind of asked me, well, what is it that you do? What's your background? And I said, well, I helped to establish and develop SROs or self-regulatory organizations. And he kind of mentioned that there was a movement in Chicago, um, but it also included national stakeholders to start to come together and to create a self-regulatory organization for digital assets. And so it was kind of from there that I, you know, my foot kind of got in the door through the angle of my background, which is self-regulation and supporting credible, transparent, you know, public interest oriented SROs um, with a modern approach to self-regulation through that angle. But it was through that that I really got excited about digital assets and blockchain technology more broadly. And um, I think that piece of it that I'm happy to kind of share more about is you know, the focus on, you know, really bringing about poverty reduction and shared prosperity. Um, So I've worked, regardless as to what country I worked in or which organization, it was always with that dual purpose of, you know, supporting economic development, supporting financial sector growth, but always with a view towards providing um, prosperity um, for the broadest numbers. And so, you know, I've worked in a lot of countries that are conflict countries or post-conflict, you know, countries like Yemen or Iraq or El Salvador or Kosovo. And these are countries that significantly need support. And by supporting them in governance institution building, you support people to make their lives better um, for themselves and for their countries at large. 
So that's kind of how I got into the digital asset space. Um, and today, you know, I sit as the CEO of the Global Digital Asset and Cryptocurrency Association. Um, we have over 80 member firms, and these include small, medium, um, from a perspective of equitable economic development, as well as some of the largest names in the digital asset space. And, you know, together we focus on um, standards and guidance, education and certification, and advocacy. Love it. Moral of the story, you never know when a Subway sandwich is going to jumpstart your career or spark a passion within you. Um, so I'm curious to know, like when you were sort of like going, you know, through school and kind of growing up, is, did you see obviously like cryptocurrencies and digital assets were like not, not there yet, but what did you kind of see yourself doing if, you know, crypto wasn't in the picture? Sure. So, um, this is like, I will give a disclaimer and say that I've always had kind of a non-traditional background. And I always introduce it like that um, because, you know, I was one of these people that like um, got passed up a lot of times for, you know, um, very traditional corporate roles. And I always kind of saw it as like a failure instead of seeing it as a unique point. And that a lot of maybe what I had to offer and the vision and view that I had was better aligned with a different way of viewing the world and a different way of viewing corporate existence in society and economy. And so from my standpoint, um, you know, I studied accounting um, undergrad. I'm a CPA actually. And I like to think that maybe perhaps I'm one of the most fun CPAs people know. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, kind of started it um, as a really solid, you know, business base. It gives you a thorough understanding of how businesses work, how they make money, how they function. Um, and, you know, from that standpoint, I ended up kind of opening myself up to sort of the, I like to say, letting the world sort of breathe through me and giving an opportunity to say, you know, where is it that I'm supposed to be and what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? And it was then that I happened to see an opportunity to go abroad to El Salvador. And this was in, again, because I'm old, 2004. <laughs> um, but it was like a summer of service. And it was for a group called Christians for Peace in El Salvador. And I chose this organization largely because they tried to match your skill set with needs. Okay. So instead of just going abroad and, you know, building houses or um, teaching English, which I did do, but um, they actually were like, well, here's your unique skill set and what you were trained and educated to do. There are people who really need that skill set. And so let's match you so that you can be put towards your highest purpose, right? And value. So I worked with a women's recycling business. Um, and this is where life gets really weird. Um, but I was placed out of all the countries in the world I could have traveled to, it was El Salvador. And out of all the cities in El Salvador that I could have been placed, I was placed in Usulután. Um, in Berlin, El Salvador. And if you know anything about El Salvador and geography, you know that that is actually the um, base of La Jaya, which is the geothermal energy plant that today will be being used for Bitcoin mining. But in 2004, it was a brand new construction and they were looking for community participants to try to socialize and engage people. And since I was headquartered with a women's recycling group, um, we've focused on leveraging geothermal energy for dehydrating fruit products and selling them in the market, right? So it's like a very basic community engagement project. Um, but 
you know, it kind of sparked in me an opportunity in a different way of viewing what my life could be like and what my career could be like. And it showed the power of, you know, using your skill sets towards building communities and the importance of, you know, what other people might think as very traditional or rote industries and applying them towards economic development outcomes and improving people's lives. And so in a micro view, yes, we built a system of bookkeeping for a women's recycling business. From a macro level, we encouraged people to step forward with empowered economic voices. We helped people to engage. And I think it was that engagement and that economic empowerment, I think that carried through and has carried through in all the roles that I've had. Um, being demand-driven and listening to people that you're working to support and build and helping to create something that truly is in the public or best interest of either the countries that you're working to support or the people who you are a partner with. Um, I think that is an important part of development economics and of international development practice. So that's kind of a long story, but, you know, your life kind of sometimes comes full circle. And now I sit on, you know, one of the leading voices in the U.S. and globally for digital assets. And I always hearken back to that experience in El Salvador and also in the 50 plus countries that I've worked in, which is that whatever you're doing, just like your podcast is titled, it's blockchain for the billions. And the billions of people who live in this world need support and need assistance, but they also are intelligent and they have very strong views that should be listened to when it comes to how to build and how to develop in a way that actually helps them. It's a very inspiring story. Thank you for yeah, sharing. Absolutely. I think it also kind of rings true to what we say oftentimes at Ecosonic, which is that there's expertise at intersections, right? So there's not just expertise in one discipline, right? But there's there's this concept of multidisciplinary expertise where, you know, you may not be the highest degree subject matter expert in a certain discipline, but the ability to combine a certain depth of expertise and profundity of knowledge across several uh, disciplines is in and of itself an expertise, right? Yeah. Um, and so we always, you know, like to think about that just because blockchain is so interdisciplinary, right? I mean, you need mathematicians, you need programmers, you need marketing, uh, you need lawyers, you need all sorts of individuals. Um, and, you know, I think that's also one of the reasons why it's so exciting because it's such a diverse space, right? So you have, um, you know, and, and that's kind of like one of the reasons why we use the term like builders, right? Like versus like programmers, because anybody can be a builder, right? Like you just, you know, you just need to be, um, kind of like interested in, in building things for the mainstream, right? Um, but, you know, that, that kind of uh, takes me back to, you know, this question that I was asking myself uh, while you were speaking, which is what about digital assets, like specifically, is it that got you interested in them? Um, because there's all sorts of multidisciplinary organizations or, dis or just kind of uh, industries that you could have helped build um, you know, self-regulating entities for, but, you know, you chose specifically uh, digital assets, right, and, and blockchain. So, you know, to you, what was kind of the, the, the potential that you saw for growth there? What, what was it that really got you interested and passionate about building this self-regulatory entity in this space? So I think it was the, the fact that digital assets are the tip of the iceberg, 
Um, so they're one of the first and most sophisticated use cases of blockchain technology. Whatever happens with digital assets is intricately tied to the direction that blockchain technology will go. And so I think when I looked at the opportunity to lend my voice from a point of economic inclusion, from social and economic equity, and to developing a regulatory structure that would actually be built with an intentional purpose of being built for everyone. I thought that this was probably one of the most impactful and important ways that I could share my skills and experience um, here at home in the US and globally. And so I think, what was it that attracted me to digital assets? It was impact. Um, and it was being able to help shape a system from the very beginning, instead of having to look at like rebuilding or restructuring or trying to, you know, archaic structures that were never designed for everyone to start and build things right the first time in a way that, and maybe it's not perfect, right? Because nothing is, but I think at the very beginning, you have a chance, an opening when people are willing to listen and are able to um, design and construct things for everyone. And if you, as we are now, like at the Global DCA, we're doing a huge socialization effort around, um, you know, what the SRO framework should look like. And the goal is to make that as inclusive and representative as possible, because if you do not design the system from the beginning in an inclusive and participative way, then the firms that will be you know, licensed, <laughs> registered, allowed to operate, they will not inherently then be inclusive or representative. And then not surprisingly, the products and tools and services that will be designed and created by those firms will not be inclusive, representative, or participatory. And so if you walk backwards in that, the most important piece, like the root cause of inequity then would be systems design. And so that's where I saw an opportunity and I think a chance to leverage my experience in building economically diverse, inclusive and representative systems here in the US in a way that could be impactful for everyone. I totally agree. Like, I think it just makes so much more sense to incorporate these values from the beginning. Um, and, you know, by the way, like designing things in a participatory and inclusive way, like is probably best practices when you're trying to impact the most people with your product, right? Um, so, you know, that, those incentives are, are kind of aligned as well. Um, one thing that I, we're kind of curious about is what do you see as your largest kind of focus area for you personally at the DCA? You guys do so many things. Um, and, you know, like you said, you, you focus on uh, best practices, education, outreach, a lot of these areas. And I'm kind of curious, um, you know, what, what area or facet of self-regulation you, you personally are most invested in uh, the DCA? Sure. No, that's a good question. And I think to answer it, I'm going to kind of walk you through what we see as kind of the five phases of modern, um, of a modern philosophy around self-regulation, right? So I think you start with, you know, your standards and guidance. So creating and understanding or creating the rules of the road. Okay. And then the next piece of that is making sure that individuals, so through education and certification programs, that individuals understand those rules of the road. They can carry them back into the firms or organizations that they work with. There's some point of, we say, like bright lights internally within these firms that are able to kind of carry the torch of what you know, appropriate behavior in the digital asset industry should look like um, from an ethical as well as a technical perspective. 
And then I think the third phase in that is capacity building. So, you know, really looking at helping firms to design um, systems, policies, processes, and procedures that align with those standards, leveraging the skills and capability um, of some of our, um, you know, different individuals that are placed in those firms. And then ultimately helping to design a system um, that can help to advance adherence to those rules. Okay. So I think for me, what are the things that I focus on most heavily? Um, you know, if you lead a self-regulatory organization, as we do, like in a voluntary mechanism, you are always first and foremost an educator. Um, and people, you know, can challenge that and say, but you have regulatory in your title. You do but not when you're raising up a new industry. In the very beginning, your focus needs to be on building and building people's skills, building their systems compliantly. Um, I'm not here to throw a gotcha moment. Like, <laughs> you know, someone once asked me, they said, well, isn't that like giving people the answers to the test? And I'm like, yes, because I want everyone to pass and I want them to build systems that are compliant and that are globally resilient and that help their firms have longevity and resilience over time. And I was like, if that's my goal, it's not to like somehow, you know, catch you on the flip side and not give you a fair chance to build appropriately over time. And I think if you recognize some of the national security, the geopolitical interests, as well as the economic growth and development um, components to blockchain and digital assets, then you would always look to build and educate in the first instance, and then over time develop mechanisms that identify those elements that are negative in the broader community and to remove those elements. But you know, in the first instance, it's about education. I think that makes so much sense. We really are focused on education. Um, every single podcast host we've had pretty much has really emphasized the need for education in the space and just kind of the value of it. Um, and also just like with the regulatory environment being so uncertain um, and, you know, kind of taking a long time frame to progress in the space moving so fast, that mismatch of kind of timelines, uh, you know, really need, means that uh, builders really need to be very careful and very intentional about educating their audience and giving them the best tools to do that, right? So empowering them to use these tools and to understand what they're doing. Yeah, I think a main a main focal point for us here at Decasonic is definitely, obviously, you know, main uh, onboarding the next billion users onto blockchain or, or you know, mainstream adoption is is really a focus of ours. Um, so with that being said, what does like, why does a group like the Global DCA matter for um, mainstream individuals? Like, what is the Global DCA doing to help onboard the next billion users into blockchain? Sure. So I think there's, you know, two ways to look at this, and I'll kind of, you know, approach it from both angles. Um, one is around institutional engagement and really looking to mainstream and sort of the broader financial sector. And then I think the other pieces that I always like to say when people come to me and they're like, well, we want billions of people to use this. And I'm like, well, funny story. That means you have to be where billions of people live. Um, and so that means international engagement. So I think I'll focus first on some of the institutional piece, and then we can focus on like a global reach and engagement strategy. Um, from a standpoint of institutions, I think this 
you know, uh, false narrative of dinosaurs versus, you know, nimble <laughs> new crusaders of the decentralized financial world, that needs to be minimized. And I think that it is harmful um, towards mainstreaming. And I think what really needs to help happen is what we see usually when we're talking about financial sector transformation and economic transformation, which is that you have to help everybody along in terms of transforming. And that means that traditional financial sector players right now are trying to grapple with how are they going to engage in this space responsibly? What does that mean for their overarching business models? How are they going to service their clients and what needs can they provide? Um, and so I think, you know, this is a space that, you know, from the global DCA side, we very openly welcome both traditional financial sector players, as well as emerging um, decentralized financial entities. Um, and the rationale behind that is that if your goal is really to mainstream and to grow, then you need to be open and willing to educate, support, and facilitate the transition of a broad base of diverse firms. And those include, you know, not only your you know, digital asset banking institutions, your um, FCMs, custodians, exchanges, but also your insurance providers, your accounting and auditing service providers, your lawyers um, and your legal services. And the idea is that if you are going to develop an industry, you need to be looking at all the bottlenecks that could potentially hamper the successful, efficient, effective, and expedient. So like three E's, expedient, efficient, effective, mainstreaming of that industry. And so I look at these as areas of pain points and bottlenecks. And if people are not brought to the table, are not supported in that transformative process, then they become bottlenecks along that process. And so that is why an inclusive approach that recognizes the breadth of all industry verticals and touch points in the digital asset ecosystem is necessary from a standpoint of mainstreaming. So institutional mainstreaming, is about viewing through an ecosystem's perspective, identifying potential or existing bottlenecks and pain points, helping people minimize those so that you're able to bring people along successfully in the three E's, expediently, efficiently, and effectively. That's one side. From a global perspective, like I said, you know, people, um, I always think it's funny because people often laugh at the things that I do or call them out as unusual or strange. And I actually see them as effective and appropriate. And maybe more people should have an open mind when it comes to engaging, especially globally. Um, you know, we're looking at the very edges of innovation in this industry, not coming from the United States and Europe. They are coming because the, um, as I always like to say, the mother of invention is necessity, and it will come from where people need solutions to problems, and the needs that those are coming from are from Asia, from Africa, and so making sure that we are engaged and supportive and facilitating both domestic industry development, where the value is retained, brain drain is minimized, and opportunity is created for people abroad as well as here at home in the U.S., is very important to global financial stability, um, and not only financial stability, but I would argue social stability over time. Um, I think engaging with jurisdictions that are looking to bring forward legitimate regimes for legal and regulatory um, you know, approaches to digital assets, helping to build up other self-regulatory movements, um, is very important. And you know, having come from a very macro global perspective, I can say that um, 
you know, yeah, you can play whack-a-mole and run all over the world and spend tons of time, money, and energy trying to change every single legal and regulatory framework in every single jurisdiction. Or you can recognize that, you know, most countries are tied and there is a key lead that they look to in terms of example, in terms of role modeling, um, and that they typically tend to lift and tailor um, based on those key leaders. And so what I have looked to do is to identify, you know, what we call as like key, you know, leader countries or tipping point countries that can offer not only um, the opportunity to create a legal and regulatory framework at home for their own people, but to stand as an example or a model that other countries, you know, 10, 20 other countries in their economic and monetary union that share similar linguistic and legal traditions that are engaged through trade agreements um, that they share and that they can help to support through this transitional process. So that instead of having to be operating in, you know, 120, 100 plus, you know, jurisdictions around the world, I can identify 10. And if I work heavily and well with those 10, then those 10 can replicate 10 to 20 more. And then by virtue of helping those 10, I've now helped close to 100 or 120. And so I think that that's sort of a broader macro level perspective. And I think sometimes at home in the US, we look at transformations happening alongside our election cycles in a two to four year period. And the reality is that economic and financial sector transformation is the 30 to 50 year process. And so looking long-term, looking strategically and looking to help build and support voices at a national level that are nationally owned and demand driven is very important to helping effectuate change that actually works for those people and for their countries and de facto then works for the United States. Love the three E's. And I think the bottleneck analogy is a really, really good way to sort of visualize it. Curious, um, you know, is self-regulation kind of a long-term need or, you know, will this converge into more formal regulation somehow and kind of what is the interplay of more formal regulation uh, with these frameworks that you've identified and this kind of model for scaling self-regulation? Sure. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, if you look historically, traditionally self-regulation many times precedes formal regulation. And that's just because the world changes. And the first people who see that change and recognize the need for clarity are people in that industry. And so a lot of times what you'll see is that self-regulation commences. Um, from a point of voluntary self-regulation. Um, and then over time, you're able to kind of build out, especially as an industry or a space matures, a more hardwired um, you know, legal and regulatory framework from a formal government regulatory perspective, okay? Now, um, that being said, I've, I've always been a huge proponent of hands-off and don't fix things that aren't broken. And that comes from not necessarily any sort of political leaning, it's more around, again, I'm a CPA. <laughs> so the efficient and effective use of allocation of resources. So I'm not going to spend or create if there is not a need to intervene and to you know, refine out. And so I've often kind of said, um, you know, let's see how things evolve over time. If there is a need to expand um, formal government regulation, then fine. Then that maybe is the you know, end result. But I think in the first instance, 
helping to support you know, voluntary engagement in an industry, helping to galvanize industry leaders to come around the table and to work together, helping to you know, facilitate diplomatic relations between and amongst competing firms um, and competing jurisdictions. I think those are all key pieces to seeing where and how this evolves. Um, but I don't necessarily see self-regulation as a substitute for government regulation. It is a complement to it. And in many ways, it helps to supplement and expand the extension of regulatory coverage. Okay. So when I look at a country, um, I think, you know, you want to look at, um, you know, the degree of which there's regulatory coverage. And so, for example, that could be 90% government regulation, 10% self-regulation. It could be 50-50s. 50% of the regulatory coverage is provided through a self-regulatory mechanism. 50% of it is provided by a government regulator. Or it could be like 20, you know, 80 or 70-30, right? But at the end of the day, my ultimate objective, it's not about, you know, protecting um, regulation for industry. It's about protecting consumers and thinking pragmatically. What is it that secures a system? What is it that provides the highest degree of regulatory coverage, the greatest degree of clarity um, for businesses so that they have comfort and confidence in investing and building in a key jurisdiction? And then what is it that's going to withstand the test of time, okay? If you are in an emerging and very rapidly evolving space, what does that regulatory environment need to look like in order to enable and to support that level of evolution at an industry level, okay? And so I think that, you know, my standpoint is always at looking at a system, doing what is in the public interest, because that doesn't change. People will have differing, and even in the span of the past two years, some of our members, we're not DeFi six months later. We're DeFi <laughs> six months from now. We're NFTs. It's traveling so fast that the corporate self-interests are so evolving and changing that even they themselves have a very difficult time saying what they want. And so when you exist in a highly VUCA environment, when your own corporate interests are changing so rapidly, the only thing that you can do is position in the public interest. Because at the end of the day, if you do what's right in the public interest space, it will always be to your advantage because you yourself are part of the public. And so that's why I think when we talk about how to orient, how to design policy, we could you know, come at it from a billion different angles, but the truth is your position today as a corporate self-interest may change 180 degrees in five months, in two months, in one month. And so if that's the position that we're orienting towards, and I'm looking at it from a position of orienting the financial sector and overarching economy, not only for the US, but at a global level, then it can only ever be oriented towards the public interest. So yeah. how does the global DCA protect consumers? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, that's a good question. I think, you know, it is an evolving step. And so in the first, in, you know, at least in the first instance, it's around standards and guidance. And like I said, it follows that kind of like five-pronged approach. And it will transform itself over time because the industry is maturing. And so I think we're looking at um, a number of different conversations right now about just how to solve that problem. Um, and how to do it from a point of balance, okay? So if I were looking at 100% consumer protection, um, like as a regulator, you would never approve anything ever because then any everyone would always be protected all the time, always, right? 
And so even if a regulator doesn't want to admit that they have a certain mandate around economic development and innovation, implicitly they do, because they do approve things and they always have to take that balance into consideration, right? Um, and that's like a silly kind of analogy, but I think it strikes home the fact that you do have a dual mandate, regardless as to who you are and what you do around innovation and economic development and opportunity. Um, so if I'm striking that balance right now, like I said, we're holding, we have 60 to 80 invitations out to firms, both within the global DCA membership, as well as external to it. We're speaking with a number of different associations. Um, some of those you would be likely like, oh yes, this is our typical you know, list of firms that or associations that we would expect you to speak with. And then I think from an ESG perspective, we're also speaking to those that perhaps you know, other people wouldn't have included in their solicitation process. And those include those that are focused on financial inclusion, that focus on you know, building for intergenerational wealth um, transfer for lower socioeconomic levels. Um, and that I think when I look at what a modern self-regulatory approach looks like, when I look at what a modern um, regulator looks like, these are the voices that need to be brought forward and need to be included to ensure that we build for, as you guys say, the billions. Um, and so that is a piece of how the global DCA protects consumers. Well, it's a process. And I think just as the industry is coming forward and designing product services um, and solutions for consumers, we are also in the process of designing an approach to protect consumers. And, you know, it is through that consultative process. It's through that purposeful, intentional inclusiveness um, that we hope to be able to deliver something that works for everyone. I think you guys also have fantastic educational content too. Um, that's kind of open to, yeah, of course. Um, that's, you know, as we've mentioned in this episode and, and pretty much every episode, like Alejandro said, um, education is really at the forefront of every founder's or, or builder's mind. So I think that education that you all offer is, is super valuable as well. Yeah. And look, I mean, we try to, we have our, um, our ongoing, we just closed the first cohort of our education and certification program, but a lot of what we offer is very purposefully offered for free. Um, and it is open. Um, and accessible to people. And the rationale behind that is that if you are really trying to um, generate transformation, it can't be transformation for just a few select interests. It has to be open to everyone because today's small and medium business could be tomorrow's billion dollar solution. And I think that, you know, that recognition, that openness, that desire to bring people around the table in an equitable manner um, is really what is going to drive, you know, leadership in the digital economy and in our shared digital future. And so from my standpoint, it's about bringing the best from an integrity perspective. It's about bringing the best from a quality perspective, because those are the voices, those are the solutions, and those are the firms who should be raised up if our goal is to lead. Um, leading is very different than I think just managing. Um, leading is about inspiring and giving hope and giving vision to people about what it should look like if we are to have that shared digital future. And I think that that's the piece that, you know, again, when we talk about consumer protection, what does that look like? Is it something that reacts or is it something that is proactive and supports prevention early? Um, 
you know, I'd like to think it's the latter, just as medicine has transformed from reactionary, giving people pills to, you know, a preventative measure. Like we're going to build things correctly. The first time we're going to put you on, you know, an exercise plan and support your healthy dieting. And because ultimately it is much more cost-effective. It is more efficient. If I help you to build and grow correctly the first time, then if I'm trying to stop, you know, large disasters or, um, you know, coming in after the fact when something has happened that hurts people. Um, so I think that that's just, you know, a, a transition and transformation in terms of regulatory philosophy, um, as well as design. Great way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Very insightful uh, there about, you know, just kind of making sure that you do it right the first time and you're growing with your values, right? So values-oriented growth. Um, one of the things that I think builders listening today could really get a lot from is, you know, what are some of the best practices that you encourage um, builders to take when they are, you know, building new applications or use cases in blockchain in terms of making sure that they're delivering educational tools and educational content for their audience to really understand what's going on. Sure. So I think, um, you know, again, I'm going to harken back to like key principles because at this point, um, you know, we're still sort of building out um, standards and guidance from our side, but I think, you know, enhancing and ensuring clear disclosure um, around what your product is, how it functions, um, ensuring that you don't fly into this hype cycle, but very reasonably share some of the challenges as well as opportunities with the products that you're building. Um, I think that that is a very important piece of standing up a responsible industry. And I think around what I'm going to broadly, you know, quote as industry stewardship, right? That's different than just being a successful business from a bottom line perspective. It's about leading in terms of thought leadership and really raising the bar on quality. Um, I think if I'm looking at it from a standpoint of how to define out, focusing on risk management internally, you know, that's your second principles basis, um, focusing on, you know, strong AML systems design and development, um, not just what is the minimum that is legally required, but I'm not going to say gold plating because I think that sometimes that pushes people towards an extreme, but, you know, we've recently worked with Finclusive to put forward our response to the U.S. Department of Treasury around their request for comment on the president's executive order. And one of the things that we focused on um, was in particular AML modernization. So leveraging the underlying technology in order to not only comply, but to enhance financial inclusion and to also ensure that, you know, we are building and leveraging the value and the amazing power of that underlying technology to solve problems today and to do it better than perhaps what we've done with, you know, analog systems. Um, I think... You know, lastly, um, you know, looking at utility and really building to solve problems, building for longevity and resilience and ensuring that, you know, you are meeting a need. Um, you know, there's a lot of things out there that fall into that hype bubble. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with building to explore and um, experiment. But I think there is also a unique value proposition and a value that derives back not only to the owners, but to the broader economy and society when you build for a purpose. And I think that, you know, from my side, if I were to like list off, like, what are the, you know, key takeaways here, 
It's to really work to build above and beyond towards a point of stewardship. It's to build towards purpose and for utility. And it's to build for quality and integrity over just, you know, what we call like slash and burn profits. Um, you know, and if you do that, I think what you've seen is that in highly VUCA environments, so volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, you stand the test of time and your business will succeed. Your business will continue to attract investment. Um, and those are the industry leaders that we hope to cultivate and support and build um, today and into the future. This has been such an insightful and interesting conversation. Gabby, we only have a couple of questions left for you. Yeah. Um, so we'll leave you with um, one and then we'll we'll ask for your advice on, on one. But um, how can regulation help onboard the next billion users into blockchain crypto adoption? So I think regulations that are right-sized um, so that don't stifle um, the underlying development of technology and the promise of financial access, so access to finance and inclusion, that's how they help to bring in the next billion. I think the other piece that you're looking at is um, regulations that do not, um, I think, entrench existing interests, but rather offer opportunity for small and medium businesses to continue to innovate, to address pain points in the system, um, in particular for those that have been traditionally underserved or excluded, um, and that, you know, I think ultimately facilitate disclosure, ease, um, but also, you know, appropriate understanding of the nature of different products and services. That's how regulations support, um, you know, mainstreaming and bringing in the next billion. Absolutely. Full, fully agree. Um, and then one last question would be, how, what advice would you give to someone looking to transition into a career that has to do with Web3, whether it be, you know, any any of the ver verticals, whether it be, you know, a lawyer or getting into regulation or marketing, any of the sectors, um, what would your advice be to that person making that career change? Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, for somebody who's making that career change, I think there's a few things. One is, you know, even when I kind of first got started into this, sometimes there's a certain air um, of, of fear that there are people who have come before you and that there's people who know so much more about the digital asset space. And I think one of the things that's really important is that this is going to take everyone. It's going to take a lot of different types of people. And it is not is very, very early in the game. And if you are interested in this space, it doesn't matter your age or your race or your background or your professional training or not, um, there is room at this table. And I think that, you know, the more voices that echo that, the more it becomes reinforced and hopefully it trickles down to individuals who are making that decision or who are on the cusp right now of whether they should engage in Web3 or not. And if that is from a direct um, you know, firm perspective or if that is from a peripheral firm perspective, I think the answer needs to be a resounding, yes, you are welcome here. Um, and so I think that is kind of one key message. Um, I think the next piece is, you know, really just making sure that, you know, you do your own professional due diligence. There are resources. We have our own education and certification program at the Global DCA, um, but there are also others that are out there that support people engaging in this space. Um, 
you know, a lot of the, you know, podcasts by Decasonic is a great way to kind of dip your feet into this. Um, looking at, you know, um, we support people as well. Um, we have sort of an outstanding um, MOU with the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance for those that want to build and build well and resiliently, right? Um, if you are looking at, you know, different industry groups, there's a number of associations that are in the process of signing MOUs with us. Um, that will help them to integrate their industry verticals and to ensure that their people have the necessary skills and abilities in order to stand up and meet the demands of government and marketplace in Web3. Um, but I think ultimately, there's a lot of self-education that is still needed in order to keep abreast of emerging trends and issues. And, you know, I think that if you are a proactive person who's looking to kind of define and to, you know, find a place for yourself, whether you're someone who's 30 years in traditional finance or you're a recent graduate or a high school student who's exploring career paths, um, you know, this is the time to really reflect and consider how you can lend your skills and how you might find a place in this space. And I want to make sure that it resonates, that it is welcoming, that it is open, and that there is a need for people of all different abilities, skills, and mindsets to participate. Totally. You heard her, folks. If you're on the fence, come join the fun side in Web3, take the dive. <laughs> no, but definitely do your research. And, you know, like Abby said, listen to our podcast episodes with different founders and their stories on how they ended up here. Um, so Gabby, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you want to give a, a shout out to any, you know, social platforms where they can find you or um, the GDCA? Yeah, so we're on LinkedIn at the Global Digital Asset and Cryptocurrency Association. We're also on Twitter at Global DCA1. Again, the firmware was taken. Um, but I'll also just, I don't know if I can do this from a trademark perspective, but I also just want to thank Subway Sandwiches for <laughs> <laughs> the pivotal role that they've had in my life. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. But like, again, you know, you have to be kind of open to the world. And sometimes like, look, all my life, people were angry that I didn't have like very concrete five, 10, 20 year career plans. Well, guess what? Sometimes when you do that, you're cutting yourself off from some of the best opportunities that are out there. So to all the people who are kind of blowing in the wind, I say to you, <laughs> you can be and will be successful. Don't listen to the haters. And yeah, you know, there's so much potential here. Find a place for yourself. It is a warm and inviting place in Web3. The wind will die down and you will settle where you're meant to be. <laughs> yeah, you'll find your space for sure. Uh, it was great to have you. Very insightful. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I hope that Subway Sandwiches maybe can sponsor this. <laughs> We'll reach out. Yeah. And, uh, Brought to you by, yeah. <laughs> Get going here for Subway sponsorship. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gabby. We will talk to you guys later and see you next time. Thank you. All right. I'll